It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits, not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no sheets. The land of the with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, but the other gangs and the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of... Our discontent. No, I have doom. Yes, it is. <laughs> what? Hey. <laughs> no, it's the hour of bloom. Abso, 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 totally for sure. <laughs> All right, your tongue's a little tied up there, bud. All right, well, I'll get over it. <laughs> hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an hour of honesty in a dishonest world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800 videos, podcasts, posts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a codger with a calling, and that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Well, you're a lot of things. I am, I'm Nurse Amy, who's only had a half a cup of coffee so far this morning. Oh, no. (laughs) Terrible. But I'm also... Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, and on top of that, a heck of a gal. Oh, thank you. That's right. Together, we are the watchers on the wall, and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a cantankerous koala? Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. But we are here to help if it isn't. Now, that means that yeah. this show is meant, unfortunately, just for entertainment purposes, but there's a little education in it as well. That's what I call edutainment. That's right. <laughs> hey, what's the stuff, Cream Puff? We learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's so easy. It is. Here is the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how. Unfortunately, it's becoming overwhelming with all the social media and stuff. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Websites. I don't know. Well, it's a little housekeeping. Let's start from the easiest thing you guys can do to get in touch with us. Email us. Mm -hmm. Remember that? After all these other things that are out, email. 
you can get a direct message to us by typing in dr bones that's plural podcast p-o-d-c-a-s-t at aol.com yes we're the old dinosaurs that still have an aol account but that's because i didn't like the way they had set up gmail it was just too confusing so anyway aol.com find us on facebook at our group another awesome thing you guys can join and chat with us survival medicine dr bones and nurse amy we have a couple of facebook pages one of them is doom and bloom you can also join our personal page which is joe alton md you can follow us on twitter at prepper show and don't forget our youtube channel at dr bones nurse amy and our other podcast, American Survival Radio. All about current events. Absolutely. And our video cast, the first and third Wednesday of every month at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at AroundTheCabin.com. Wow, that is a lot, but that's not all. Don't forget our brand spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. It's now available on Amazon. Just got up there. 670 pages of useful information on just about any medical issue you'd encounter in times of trouble. Actually, about 150 of them. So check them out at Amazon.com and get a copy for your survival library. For goodness sake, one day you'll be glad you did. Now, where are we going to be in the near future? We're going to be in, I think, Springfield, Missouri. (laughs) So many places. All right. Well, let's just tell them the next one. The next one is Springfield, Missouri. That's it. Springfield, Missouri. What weekend is that? Uh, that is June 20. I actually have my calendar right here. As a matter of fact, the show is June 25th and 26th. And that is the... What's the RK name? show. Yes! <laughs> RK Prepper Shows. See, this is what happens when you have eight more shows for the rest of the year. RK Prepper Shows. Awesome show, folks. Come out and see us. And... Um, we haven't done a show actually in Springfield, I don't think. I don't know. We've never we done one near in Springfield. It. We've had, it's been at least a couple of years since we've been in Missouri. Yeah, so it's we'll beautiful be glad, country. Yeah, we'll be glad to and we're see doing, all the nice folks. This there. is the important thing. We're doing a suture class uh-huh. on Sunday, the 26th, at the RK Prepper Show. And that is at 9.30 a.m. So come join us for that. In fact, folks, I want to mention one more thing. We are doing a Florida class. Oh, right. We yes. are, indeed. July 16th. In I'm going to put... hometown. Yeah. July 16th. I'm going to put that up on our classes page, and that's going to be from 10 to 1 p.m., and it's actually going to be at our warehouse. Yeah, it's a very special class, and I hope that <laughs> our local... Double secret. Our local <laughs> listeners will... Check it out. It is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, if you live in Florida, come see us. All right, well, that's enough housekeeping. Wow, that is too much, as a matter of fact. I have to figure out a way to streamline that. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Without the rule of law, it's been said that we're only a couple of weeks from cannibalism. This is especially true when a major disaster hits an urban area. The sheer number of people knocked off the grid without access to clean water and food, that's going to cause things to turn ugly very, very quickly. Now, you'll often read that when the you-know-what hits a fan, if you follow uh, preparedness websites, you should head to your rural retreat. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of people. It would be great if the government gave everybody a rural retreat or a compound on the top of a mountain, but not very many people can afford that if you have that option. And the truth is, is that you can expect roads to be closed early by the authorities if there really is a disaster, so you're probably not going to be able to get to it anyhow. So... 
That's a big issue. Of course, a lot of people won't recognize the trigger events early enough to get out of Dodge. A lot of big problems. And so the nice folks at American Survival Guide, who I uh, contribute articles regularly to, have asked me to write about urban survival from my standpoint, medical standpoint. And that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm talking about some of the things that are in that article. American Survival Guide is a great magazine, so make sure that you get a copy. Now, most people live in cities are going to have to figure out how to survive in place. Now, that means having something to eat, having some way to protect yourselves, but also the ability to deal with medical issues. You need, of course, you need the bullet beans, you need the bullets, but you need the bandages as well. Now, although trauma is what most people think about in urban survival, most deaths will occur due to lack of clean water. Water treatment facilities will break down. Epidemic disease is going to run rampant, let's face it. Issues with hygiene and sanitation are going to cause the general health of the population to weaken. That's going to cause them to become susceptible to infectious diseases. Absolutely. Heck yeah. Yep. Dysentery, cholera, other diseases are going to lead to severe dehydration. Without the availability of IV fluids, antibiotics, these illnesses are going to threaten entire communities. Now, if you doubt it, consider this. In the Civil War, more people died of dehydration, soldiers even, from dysentery and other illnesses and died of bullet or shrapnel wounds. Now, you don't need to be a medic to know how to sterilize water, but you will save a lot of lives if you use one of these techniques. Boiling, you want to use a heat source to get water to a rolling boil for one to five minutes. That's going to kill most germs, not all, but most. And using a pressure cooker would be even more thorough. We'll talk about that in a second. Water boil. By the way, it's very important to know that water boils at a lower temperature at higher elevations. So add a minute of boiling time for every thousand foot rise in elevation from sea level, and you will make sure that you get rid of most of the bacteria, most of the critters that are in there. Now, of course, with a pressure cooker, you will be able to get rid of heat-resistant bacteria as well. So use it at, let's say, 250 degrees Fahrenheit, 15 PSI, and do that. Cook it for 15, well, no, not 15. I'd say 30 minutes, uh, Thirty for 30 minutes. Chlorine is also very useful for eliminating bacteria. Household bleach has a really excellent track record uh, of doing that. 8 to 12 drops in a gallon of water will do the trick. Piece of cake. You have to wait for about 30 minutes before you drink it. Now, if you're used to drinking city-treated water, you probably won't notice any difference in taste. Now, 2% tincture of iodine will also work, about 12 to 16 gallons, uh, 12 to 16 drops per gallon of water. That will be effective to eliminate most microbes. And, of course, don't forget the power of the sun. Ultraviolet radiation from the sun will actually kill bacteria. Six to eight hours of direct sunlight, even better on a reflective surface, you get even more of an effect. That'll kill bacteria. Fill, let's say, an empty two-liter uh, clear bottle that you emptied the soda out of, that is. Uh, two, yes. <laughs> you know what? That's a good point. <laughs> uh, you, well, don't worry. In urban survival, you're not going to find much soda. But you no, will find, no. You will find it's a, the empty bottle uh, we yeah. want you to fill up with water. All right. You're going to find a lot of clear, bo- <laughs> empty bottles, hopefully. Now, fill, fill it with water. It's about 90% full. Shake vigorously for 20 seconds. The oxygen releases from the water molecules, and it helps the process along, even improves the taste, as a matter of fact. You know, I just want to say one thing. We, we're all worried about recycling. And I tell you, nothing's going to help us recycle things 
better than some kind of survival situation. I'll say. We're going to use everything. Those plastic forks that people just discard with no thought whatsoever are going to become precious. A paper plate will become precious. We're going to be so careful about everything that we use that we typically just toss away. I know. You know, that piece of aluminum foil that, you know, had a tiny little spot of something on it. That's going to be washed and saved. Well, I hope you're listening out there, you spoiled brats. <laughs> <laughs> we do recycle. I w- uh, but, you know, there's two types of recycling. The recycling that we're discussing right here is actually utilizing mm-hmm. these things that we typically throw away. And, you know, what we think about recycling. To remanufacture. No, right, right in survival situation, the way you're discussing it is that we actually just keep these things and, and reuse right. them ourselves. The way we do recycling now, the way we think about recycling is that we put it in a bin, it gets shipped off to, I don't know, some magical place and, and repurpose, supposedly, theoretically, theoretically right? Is Not it, exactly is it, sure. Is it a myth? <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's just something to make us feel better. You know, let's make it's the commu- communities feel better about, quote, recycling. But I've heard it actually costs more money to use and sort and process all of the items that we recycle in our bins than to just make it make from it new. new. Yeah. yeah. So I've heard that. Hmm. Oh, so are they really Troubling. Very troubling. Oh. Uh, one other thing, a, a cloudy, cloudy water may have particulates in it, so therefore you need to have some kind of filter figured out, of course. So you can have commercial filters. They come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, the ultralight life straws on our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Lots of stuff there. And, of course, Berkey filters, B-E-R-K-E-Y, are probably the gold standard for the larger filters. They they come, they could be as big as restaurant espresso machines. And these get rid of particulates as well as microbes, which is something that the other methods don't do. They sterilize the water. We don't get rid of the debris in it. Now, improvised water filters can also be made from, there's that clear bottle again, from sand and gravel. Put put different layers of different size, uh, put layers of different size gravel and sand in it. And let's say coffee filters or pieces of cloth in between the layers, and that will get rid of particles and debris. Now, in and of itself, it won't sterilize the water, so you have to use some of these other methods as well, unless you have a commercial water filter. Now, urban survival scenarios put you at constant risk for encounters with hostiles, too. And so physical trauma is going to be something that you, if you're going to be medically responsible for people in that situation, you have to be prepared for. Therefore, every family has to have, let's say, the materials that are going to be necessary to deal with traumatic events. And so we'll talk about exactly what you need in just a short time, but... The truth of the matter is get as many supplies as you can. If you can accumulate some medical knowledge and accumulate a lot of supplies, you might just save a life one day. Now, training for would-be survival medics, you can get this, let's say, in your first aid and community emergency response team, CERT, C-E-R-T classes. They're offered by a lot of uh, municipalities. Probably your hometown has something like it. You should be aware of these classes. Do assume the availability of transport to modern medical facilities. In other words, you can evacuate this person. Even combat medics are taught mostly 
what to do to get people ready for evacuation to intensive care or an advanced medical facility. So the truth of the matter is, as you learn this stuff, it's probably a good idea to be thinking in the back of your mind, what am I going to do if I have to care for this injury or care for this illness from beginning to end? Because that indeed is what's going to happen if there is a true disaster. I mean, it'll be a challenge, certainly, but you know what? When the normal emergency medical system is non-existent, if you're properly equipped as a medic, you will prevent a lot of unnecessary deaths. And some some lives will be saved because you've paid attention to water sterilization or maybe food preparation, keeping people clean, hygiene. Others will be saved by dealing with trauma. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you can be pretty sure that people are going to be aggressive when food's scarce, and there's going to be a hostile encounter here and there, and they're going to, it's going to be part and parcel of survival in the cities. Now, some of these will end up in pretty bad injuries, and you better know how to deal with them, especially those injuries that cause hemorrhage. Now, the initial field assessment of a trauma victim usually involves the acronym ABCDE, and A is airways, airway open, B is the victim breathing, C is the victim bleeding, C, C is circulation, so you got A, airway, B, breathing, C, circulation, this is victim bleeding, disability, D, can the victim feel and they move their extremities, can they respond appropriately to questions, mental status okay, and of course, then you have to expose E, the wound, can you see the full extent of the injury, are there other injuries hidden, maybe an exit wound, for example, from a gunshot. Now, in the actively bleeding wound, that sequence changes to C-A-B-D-E. That means I put circulation or bleeding first. Now, in normal times, medical personnel might be dealing with heart attacks and strokes. I'm about to keel over from one right now. <laughs> but in urban survival, wait, she's laughing. But in urban survival... Honey, I have your aspirin yeah. and I have your um, uh, cayenne pepper tincture. Oh, joy. Available. Oh, so don't worry. All right. Maybe and, I, and I have an AED and a pulse oximeter and some oxygen. So we're good to go. All right. Don't sounds worry. good. Add a blood pressure uh, cuff and that's I, I some of the that. stuff that you should be carrying. I, I have that also. In times of trouble too. Good. <laughs> I'm prepared. All right. Well, and anyhow, in normal times, medical personnel may be dealing with, as I said, heart attacks or strokes, but right. truthfully... With a bleeding wound, that's going to occur, not from that, but from hemorrhage. And so you got to control the bleeding in short order. You probably have heard of the golden hour out there. If a trauma victim fails to get help within the first hour, the chances for survival decrease significantly. Wow, with hemorrhage, that is maximized, that's multiplied to the max. And I say it's not the golden hour, I say it's the platinum five minutes, because five minutes of arterial bleeding and your casualty might just be without help, especially if you're off the grid and have no chance to get them to help, to advance care. Now, arterial bleeds can be identified by a bright red color. It spurts out in concert with the pulse. And of course, venous bleeding is dark, almost blackish in some cases, and it just sort of flows steadily out of a wound. Now, an average-sized human adult has about, oh, nine to 10 pints of blood, I'd say, the effect on the body caused by blood loss is going to be in line with the amount of blood loss incurred normally. It might be difficult to assess the amount just by looking, but these physical signs are going to give you a good idea of what you're dealing with. If you've lost, let's say, 1.5 pints or, or three quarters of a liter or less, 
little or no effect. I mean, you can donate a pint of blood, right? And you can do that as often as every eight weeks. So they wouldn't do that if it was dangerous. For I you. thought they told me to come back every week. No wonder I'm so <laughs> no pale. No <laughs> Fainting. <laughs> They're like, we really like your play. Come back next week. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not feeling so good, honey. <laughs> I did get free movie tickets, mm. though. <laughs> That's nice. I mean, hopefully it's to like a Red Cross. Uh... Yeah. It's that van that's parked in front of the movie theater. Yeah. They say, we'll give you free tickets. And we've been getting free movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to stop going to the movies for a while. Yes, well, I think that I think that's probably good if we're going to deal with your anemia. I think I'm going to go take an I mean, iron pill. Now, honestly, guys, it's a great thing to donate blood. Please do it if you possibly if you possibly can. And you might get free movie tickets. Well, that's right. So anyhow, there comes a point where bleeding does indeed cause an issue and and physical signs, and that's at about 1.5 pints uh, greater than uh, three quarters of a liter. The Victim is usually going to start showing symptoms. That person's going to be agitated. You're going to start seeing a rapid heartbeat and rapid breathing. And the reason why this is because the body is trying to get oxygen to the cells. And if there are less red blood cells, the cells that carry oxygen in your body, and those are in your blood, well, guess what? Then you've got to process them faster in order to get oxygen, the same amount of oxygen to the to the various organs. And so you've got to have your heart beat faster and you have to breathe faster to get more oxygen in. So that's a big issue. Now, the skin starts becoming pale, it becomes cool. It is beginning to be an issue. And this goes until, let's say, you know, a, a liter and a half or about 3.5 pints. I mean, once you hit 3.5 pints, that's 1.5 liters or greater, blood pressure begins to drop, you're Patient starts to show signs of altered mental status, beginning to fall out, become lethargic. The heartbeat, however, is very rapid as the body tries to maintain its oxygenation. And once you hit more than two liters, the victim is in big, big trouble, very pale, probably unconscious. The blood pressure drops even further. The heart rate and respirations, however, instead of going faster, the body is beginning to give up and the heart rate and the respirations decrease. This person's in shock, probably, and is most likely not going to make it unless you can get to advanced health. Now, some of the things you need, you having a pair of EMT shears or bandage scissors. That's a mandatory part of any medic kit. It allows you to cut away clothing that prevents you from seeing the full extent of the injuries. That makes sense, right? Now, the bleeding isn't always coming from the first wound you see. If you don't fully expose the area, you could easily miss secondary wounds or even or even the primary bleeder. Now, let's talk about gunshot wounds. A gunshot wound makes an entry wound, but there can easily be an exit wound as well, depending on various factors, speed of the bullet, type of round, etc. Now, you might expect an exit wound to be directly opposite from an entrance wound, but this is not always the case. As a matter of fact, commonly not the case. The bullet may have bounced off a bone, moved in an entirely different direction, the position of the victim when the shot uh, occurred, that is very important. If they were, let's say you were in a crouching position when you were hit in the chest, well, the exit wound could easily be in your butt or your lower back. So you have to think about how the victim was positioned when they were shot. Now, a person with a major bleed, as I said before, is often in shock. You got to keep them warm by covering them with a blanket cloth or mylar. 
The Mylar ones fold into these little squares, perfect for your pack, add almost no weight. If the wound is in an arm or leg, raise it a good 12 inches above the level of the heart. This decreases the blood pressure in the extremity and thus the force by which blood leaves the body. It also makes it easier for the heart to oxygenate the brain and other vital organs. It makes it harder for the heart to push blood out of the body if it has to go against gravity too. Now, if the wound is in the torso though, do not elevate the legs. That's going to worsen the situation. Now, in the grand majority of cases, direct pressure with glove hands on the bleeding vessel might stop bleeding all by itself. So you need gloves, right? That's some of the stuff you need. Now, in severe hemorrhage, however, it might be obvious that this action alone is just not enough. Current Tactical Combat Casualty Care, TCCC guidelines, or TC3 guidelines, favor the early use of a tourniquet to decrease the total amount of blood loss, increase the chance of survival. This is different in the past. The tourniquet was a last resort. And now the tourniquet is considered a first resort, especially if you're seeing arterial bleeding. So this is something that is very important. That means that a tourniquet, and I think more than one tourniquet, is going to be an important part of your medical kit. So make sure you have at least two tourniquets. I think that is going to be the absolute minimum. There are a lot of different types of tourniquets. There's uh, soft tees, which are one of our favorites. The cat tourniquet, which is a longtime military favorite, now in a, a new generation that's addressed some of its previous shortcomings. The rat tourniquet, the SWAT tourniquet. Wow. SWAT tourniquet is a useful tourniquet because it's basically just one big elastic band that can be used as a pressure dressing, but it can be used as a tourniquet depending on how tight you, tightly you put it. SWAT also, the instructions are the name, SWAT, stretch, wrap, and tuck, S-W-A-T. So, and, but there are many other tourniquets as well, and you may have your personal favorite, but have at least two. Tourniquets have been shown in recent conflicts like Iraq and Afghanistan to improve the survival rate of casualties, so make sure you have them. That's the deal. Now, I may talk about, if I have time, I may talk about the different tourniquets a little later on. But remember, you can also improvise tourniquets. Necessity is the mother of invention, they say, right? So you can improvise a tourniquet just by having a long piece of cloth, a bandana, a triangular bandage, something like that, and, uh, and a stick uh, or, or a pen or anything just about it. You wrap the bandana or other wide strip of cloth about two inches above the wound, tie it tightly, and... Uh, put the stick in place and tie a knot over the stick. Then you can twist the stick until adequate pressure is applied to stop the bleeding. Uh, and you can also notice that the pulse will be no longer uh, palpable. You, can't, you won't be able to feel the pulse on the wrist, for example, if the wound is in the arm. And then tie another knot on top of the stick or whatever you're using to secure it. And of course, this is less effective than these commercial meth models. Some of these are highly engineered, but you know what? It may be all that you have, and it is better than nothing. So make sure that at least you know how to improvise a tourniquet if you have to. Now, about tourniquets, don't place them on joints, on a bleeding wound to the forearm or the lower leg. Sometimes people recommend placing the tourniquet on the upper arm, above the elbow, or above the knee. <clears throat> now, others frown upon this. Uh, as more uninjured areas will be compressed. But if you put it on, uh, on uh, 
parts of the extremity that have only one bone as opposed to two. You have two bones in your forearm. You have one bone in your upper arm. You have two bones in your lower leg. You have one bone in your thigh. It might be able to give some uh, additional evenness to the distribution of the pressure. So that's what some people say with regards to that. This is a little controversial, of course. Now, if you have bleeding still occurring despite the presence of a tourniquet, you got to put another tourniquet on. You put it up on maybe two inches above the level of the first one. So sometimes you just have to use two, as I said before. Now, other things that you should have, you should have hemostatic agents. These are products that stop bleeding. They should be part of every medic's kit. Quick Clot, C-Lox, C-E-L-O-X. These dressings are easy to work with, widely available online. Simply pack the dressing directly onto the bleeding vessel, not just into the wound, onto the bleeding vessel. Apply pressure for about three minutes. In most cases, the arterial, even arterial bleeding will stop. Now, the medic must have a good supply of dressings. You got to have a regular band-aid bandages and you have some band-aids too uh, regular bandages to deal with hemorrhagic wounds there are so many different types lots of very variability with regards to this and always have more of these than you think you would need just one severe bleed can take up the majority of what you've got you'd be very surprised how bad bleeding can be something you might consider for your Medical pack or H&H compressed gauze dressings. There are a lot of different brands. H&H is one. And these are vacuum packed. They come in little squares or little rectangles, but they can be like 12 feet long. They are pretty incredible. They take up very little space in your pack. You can put a bunch of in, them in there and you might just need them. So you might as well have them. Uh, it's important to have things like Israeli battle dressings, also known as the emergency bandage in the U.S. or other pressure dressings. Oleus, O-L-A-I-A-S is another brand. And there are a lot of different sizes of these based on what you need them for. They're also useful for a lot of things. They can uh, stabilize an orthopedic injury, and we'll talk about that in just a second. We're going to take a very short break, but we're going to continue to talk about urban medical survival techniques right after these messages. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Joe Alton, MD. I'm here to remind you that disasters can happen anytime, anywhere, and you need to know what to do in an emergency. The new 2016 third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook is the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. The Survival Medicine Handbook covers every issue you'll face in times of trouble, and it's all in plain English. Get the Survival Medicine Handbook at Amazon.com. I guarantee one day you'll be glad you did. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. And we're back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD, and Amy Alton, ARMP, also known as Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Well, we were talking about urban survival situations, and we are talking about trauma. And, of course, bleeding is a big part of that, and we just discussed that. But also another common thing that is a big issue is 
orthopedic injuries, even in bleeding injuries, sometimes you want splints or other types of material that would help you immobilize a wound just like you would an orthopedic injury. Something like a SAM splint, SAM star, uh, stands for Structural Aluminum Malleable Splint. And it basically is like a 36 inch strip of this material that you can fold up. You can pretty much put it in any position so that you can protect a wound that has been injured so that it doesn't re-bleed when you're transporting it, uh, the person, or you can protect the sprain, or you can protect even a fracture. They come in all sorts of different sizes. Some additional things that would be very useful would be to have elastic ace wraps, maybe braces, ice packs, definitely those shake and break ice packs that are chemical those are very, very helpful. You should have a bunch of those. Uh, of course, pain medicines like ibuprofen, those would be very good for orthopedic injuries. These are all helpful additions to your kits. Now, if you're an ambitious medic, you might want casting materials, plaster of Paris, fiberglass. These come in kits as well as uh, stockinettes. Stockinettes are basically sort of like a sock that you put over the injured area. That's uh, that's a beginning of the casting process, then some padding that is put over that, and then the plaster of Paris or fiberglass strips. And so this allows our medic to give even more protection to the worst of these injuries. And we have to realize that in an urban survival setting, there's going to be a lot of rubble and debris. You may have to travel rapidly through it, and people are going to fall or they're going to injure themselves and have sprains and strains and, and even fractures in some cases. Now, you might also consider having things like wound closure materials, things like sutures, needle holders, uh, glues, steri-strips, staples. These are supplies that will give you even more options for dealing with lacerations and open wounds. Now, it's important to realize that most urban wounds are going to be dirty, so actually closing a wound is often not the right choice, but you want to have the materials to be able to do that if absolutely necessary. But more important than having the skill to do this procedure is to have the appropriate judgment as to when this procedure should be done. When a wound should remain open, and that's most of the time, heal from the inside out, that uh, is a type of healing called granulation because the tissue looks sort of granular as it's healing in. You've got to change the dressings regularly. You've got to clean the wound regularly, preferably at least twice a day. This is something that even combat medics don't do because in general they are evacuating their casualties and they're not having to take care of them with regards to daily wound care. So you have to consider this because the survival medic will have to do that. They're it from beginning to end. So you got to make sure you have the materials for that. You need a 60 to 100 cc syringe so you can flush out debris, old clots from the wound. We call this irrigation. You want sterile water or saline solution or even some dilute iodine, betadine, for example, to keep the wound moist, not soaking wet. Remember that new cells like a moist environment. They're what we call hydrophilic. They like a moist environment. And a really dry environment or using material that materials that might dry them out, like alcohol or hydrogen peroxide, may actually slow healing. As a result, you'll want to pack the wound with something we call a wet-to-dry dressing. Basically, everything below the level of the skin or, or at the level or below the level of, skin, of the skin should be moist. Not soaking wet, but moist. That's the wet part of the dressing. And then you cover that with dry gauze and secure it in place. That's 
the wet-to-dry dressing. It's a common way to deal with open wounds. And over time, new tissue fills in the defect. Uh, this takes, well, a variable amount of time. It might take a couple of weeks. It might take more in a lot of cases, depending on the size of the wound. And the scar may not be pretty, but you have to remember what you're not, you're not really so worried about the cosmetic effect. You're much more worried about avoiding a major infection because that's something that may kill your, your patient. Now, although clean drink of water is perfectly reasonable to clean wounds with on a regular basis as they're healing, sterile saline might even be better. So this can be either purchased commercially, but that's going to be very expensive over, the period, over a period of time. I would prefer that you make your own so that you can produce it as you need it. So to do this, you need a few items. You need a pan with a lid. You need a heat source. You want to put a liter of water in your pan and put two teaspoons of non-iodized salt in it. Kosher salt's good. Don't use rock salt, though. It's got added chemicals. You want to use that heat source to get it to a rolling boil for about 15 minutes. Then let it cool with the lid on and then pour it into sterile canning jars. Close the sterile canning jars with sterile lids and put this away in a dark, cool place, dry place, and what you have is sterile saline solution for irrigation that you can use for probably about a month before it's no longer sterile. Once you open it up, however, it will obviously not be sterile anymore, or at least in a very short time, it will not be sterile anymore. So that's important. Remember that dirty wounds will often show signs of infections within the first few days. You're going to see spreading redness, swelling, warmth. These are some of the things that you'll see in an infected wound as time goes by, it becomes shiny as it swells, and you'll notice that the healing progress is slowed down or may not, it may not heal at all. Now, you want to have a good stockpile of antibiotics. We've talked about these many, many times. Certain veterinary equivalents are awesome for this, and you can find those on doomandbloom.net or in our third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook on Amazon. Now, if you have these items, you're going to be able to nip infections in the bud and prevent some unnecessary deaths. That is so important. Burns. Burns also can be seen in survival settings, especially in urban areas. And you know what? Your Celox hemostatic dressing you had for bleeding can serve double duty as a dressing for these types of wounds. Simply wet it and it's going to have become a gel-like slimy bandage that's going to give good protection for even severe burns. Other dressings useful for burns include non-stick bandages like Telfa pads, petroleum jelly impregnated gauze like Xeroform, that's with an X, X-E-R-O-F-O-R-M. Aloe vera is useful medicinal plants for burns that grows in many parts of the country. And so is honey. Honey is an excellent protectant. Uh, even if you took some aloe vera or honey and covered the wound with a plastic wrap, not tightly and maybe not all the way around, uh, you'll have good protection for that wound. So that is so important to consider natural products in your medical supplies because eventually the pharmaceuticals, let's face it, they're going to run out and you're going to need to depend on these. Now, in many urban areas, hostile encounters aren't going to be uncommon. The situation is going to deteriorate. Battles for resources are going to occur and they're going to intensify. And doing the right thing at the right time is of paramount, of paramount importance for the medic this, however, might be different than what you would consider good medicine in normal times. Aha! In unsafe, this is something to take away. In an unsafe environment, good medicine could be bad tactics, and that could get people killed. 
Now, an important goal in these scenarios is you got to abolish all threats, and that means the medic may need to provide suppressive fire. Yes, the medic should be armed before treating victims. The best medical care when under fire is eliminating the enemy or at least keeping their heads down and their weapons silent. Of course, you want to attend to wounded group members immediately. That's a natural impulse. But unfortunately, if you do, you will likely become the next casualty if you run into the line of fire. Now, in wartime, that was actually a very common way for medics to meet their demise. And oftentimes, they were on the way to evaluate casualties that were already beyond help. So it should be understood that many of the tools used to evaluate a victim are going to be maybe not so helpful in a firefight. You're not going to be able to listen to a casualty's heart and lungs with a stethoscope if there's heavy fire. Actually, probably not much use. Also, honestly, I think it's foolhardy to use a headlamp at night to treat the wounded as it might as well become a bullseye. Now, when you're under fire, you've got priorities. Your priorities are abolish or suppress the threat. Avoid exposure to enemy fire while attempting to reach a casualty. Get your casualty and yourself to reasonable cover. Use your tourniquet along with direct pressure, other hemostatic agents, and other methods to stop heavy bleeding and use those methods early. And transport your victim and yourself away from the field of fire if at all possible. Now notice in all this, I'm not mentioning airway management or cervical spine immobilization, which are two basic steps in evaluation and transport of trauma victims. Of course, if your patient's conscious, he'll talk, and you'll know that there is an airway. You can't talk without there being air passage. That is something that's important to know. Stabilization of the spine, well, that's good medicine, but control of hemorrhage is going to be the most likely way you'll save a life. You don't have much time to do much else. Never forget the importance of cross-training. Everyone should carry some basic medical supplies while on patrol. They should know basics of hemorrhage control and especially how to apply a tourniquet to themselves if they're wounded. Now, there is a lot more to surviving in urban disaster settings. That's true. But with some supplies and know-how and some training, have no doubt you're going to save some lives. So this is the deal, guys. Urban survival, you are at major risk. And hopefully, if you listen to what I have to say, that you are going to be a more effective medic for it. Well, I've got a couple of minutes, so let me tell you a little bit about the tourniquets. The CAT tourniquet is called the, it's the Combat Application Tourniquet. The current Generation 7 CAT tourniquet has a 2.4-inch wider Velcro band than before. It has a one-handed plastic bar, also wider, called a windlass. When it's turned, the windlass tightens the band. That should be placed two inches or above the wound or higher. And the this gives the caregiver a couple of free hands, very useful, and a much improved product over the previous CAT generations. Now, the soft T tourniquet is still my favorite. It's called the Special Operations Forces Tourniquet. It was developed in response to concerns about the sturdiness of the, of the windlass, which is plastic, in the CAT tourniquet. The soft T has a windlass made of fuselage-grade aluminum. You're going to have to will this, put this in your will to your grandchildren because it's going to last a very, very long time. You got a sturdy buckle that eliminates the need for threading the tourniquet anywhere, secures the strap in place. Excellent tourniquet. There's another one called the RAP tourniquet, the rapid application tourniquet. It's essentially a bungee cord, although some new models, the cord is sort of flat. That's wrapped around the extremity above the wound in a series and then fitted into a metal clip to maintain pressure. Now, it's relatively expensive compared to some of the others, but it has to be made sure that the coils of the RAT are placed next to, not on top of, the first coils. 
uh, because otherwise you wind up with ligature-type injuries of the skin. There's something called the mat tourniquet, mechanical advantage tourniquet. This tourniquet is a cuff with a key that you wind up like an old-fashioned toy. This is There is a spot on the mat when, when you press it, releases the pressure instantly, which makes it easy to release something that's an issue with some of the other tourniquets. Pressure may also be released by disengaging the buckle, which must be clipped in place at the beginning of the procedure. I've looked at this. It's really best used with two hands, but an excellent tourniquet. The SWAT tourniquet, one of my favorites. SWAT stands for stretch, wrap, and tuck. SWAT tour- the SWAT tourniquet's a wide elastic band that can serve as a tourniquet or a pressure dressing, depending on how much pressure you use, and it's very simple to use. The instructions are the name, let's face it. It's a compact, lightweight, and inexpensive Alternative, definitely at least a second tourniquet in your pack should be a SWAT. And this is what its major strength is. It's got a lot of versatility, so a lot of people carry it as their backup. There's other ones like the Parabelt. Now, that's a recent addition of the market. It's a belt. It's a utility belt. You wear it daily, and it becomes a ratcheting tourniquet with a self-locking system. comes in about five or six different sizes. And you can turn your belt into a tourniquet, but a much more efficient tourniquet than an actual belt would be. Then there's, of course, pneumatic tourniquets, tourniquets that are like blood pressure cuffs. Sometimes uh, this is called the EMT or the emergency and military tourniquet. These are commonly used in operating rooms when they're doing surgery on a limb, for example, that they might have to amputate or they might be doing other surgery on that may be otherwise very bloody. This is something that might be helpful. Now, it's important to make sure that this is applied correctly to avoid skin damage because if, it crinkle, if it's crinkled or folded, it can cause excessive pressure on skin. But however, this item does have the advantage of knowing exactly how much pressure is being applied, something you don't know with any of the other ones. So these are all very interesting, very useful items, something to consider for your medical pack. Hey, we don't have much time left, but I want to tell you a little bit about my role as part of Jack Spierko's The Survival Podcast Expert Council. We take questions from Jack's listeners and we provide answers and try to give them different ways that they can deal with a number of issues, medical issues. And this time around, we got a question from someone who had issues with very thin skin. The guy is a rancher, spends a lot of time outdoors, winds up hurting himself oftentimes, and his very apparently very thin skin, called parchment skin, that winds up healing very poorly whenever the skin is broken. So we're going to discuss this issue and talk about the rancher's questions, and you'll find it right here coming up. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones, co-author of the brand spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. 670, wow, pages of information that will help you succeed even if everything else fails. You can get it at Amazon.com. I'm also the founder of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800 free posts, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week's question for the Survival Podcast Expert Council is from Rancher, the rancher who writes... What is the best way to get slow-healing surface wounds to heal? I'm a 60-year-old, otherwise healthy rheumatoid arthritis sufferer with a question on skin care that pertains to many people with autoimmune diseases, diabetes, and simple aging. I have what my primary care physician calls parchment skin. As I've aged, my skin is thinned out and damages easily. 
For example, a simple bump against a door jam may tear a half-inch piece of the outer layer of the skin off, sometimes causing bleeding, sometimes just weeping a little serum. For a person that's quite active in the outdoors with livestock and gardening, this is obviously a problem. But the worst part is how long it takes for these simple small wounds to heal. I presently have about 10 wounds on my hands that have not fully healed. They vary in age from about two days to eight weeks. When I was younger, none of these would have lasted more than a week before the wound would have healed. I know that for diabetes sufferers, infections and slowly healing cuts are a major cause of amputations. In my case, I haven't lost the feeling in my extremities that exacerbates the damage for the slow healing wounds of diabetics. I know that when I have a sore and I know that I'm taking a drug that increases my risk for infection, which I am, I really try to take care of the wounds, but they still take a long time to heal even when they are never infected. I asked a dermatologist about this, and his comment was to keep superglue around to more effectively seal the wound than a simple bandage. This may help it from getting infected, but it hasn't sped the healing process. Do you know of any natural herbs, salves, or lotions that would help expedite the healing process? A comfrey salve seems to help some, but since I almost always have breaks in my skin that, that need treatment, it seems risky to use something that's not recommended for regular use. Rancher, thinning skin is a natural consequence of aging and a life lived in the outdoors. Some people, especially those with fair complexions, will have more problems with this than others, but few, if any, will avoid this issue if they live long enough and will experience longer healing times for even the most minor injury. Diabetics and people with autoimmune conditions such as yourself are especially prone. Infections like cellulitis are also a concern, but you don't seem to have a lot of these. Medical treatments for thickening skin exist, but involve prescription drugs like Retin-A creams, which are effective, I will say they are effective, especially on the face. Some people notice irritation with this treatment, however, so discuss this option with your doctor. There are a number of natural remedies for this condition, and comfrey salve is indeed one of them. Other herbs that might help include aloe vera, calendula, echinacea, and St. John's wort. Of these, calendula ointment seems to be the most effective, according to some naturopaths. Some suggest that CoQ10 lotions might decrease bruising seen in people with your condition. Another is honey, which has antibacterial action and has a protective effect on minor wounds. Make sure you use unprocessed raw honey. That is very important. Contact local beekeepers instead of going to the store. The heating process they use for commercial honey it removes a lot of its beneficial effects. Now, some supplements that might help thicken skin include flaxseed and fish oil. A study published in a British journal some years ago suggests that some condition that cause thinning skin might improve with these dietary products. If you're not using sunscreen and moisturizers, you should start. Stay away from anything but the mildest soap, especially those that use additives to give it a nice smell. Remember to always apply moisturizer on wet skin for the best effect. And speaking of wet, stay well hydrated. Drink lots of water or clear liquids every day. Improving hydration will affect the elasticity of skin and help it heal faster naturally. One last thing, I noticed that your wounds are on your hands. For goodness sake, when you're out there, wear hand protection. If you don't wear hand protection, you are cruising for a bruising or at least for a cut or two on your skin. Now, as time goes on, we all have to deal with aging skin, but some of these strategies might help speed healing. 
This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, make an old man very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcast, A Survival Medicine Hour, and the new current events podcast, American Survival Radio. You'll find links at doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Well, that's about all the time that we have for this week. We thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. And we hope that you'll check out our other podcast, American Survival Radio, over at americansurvivalradio.com or Genesis Communications at gcnlive.com. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.